I don't know what happened. It like cut off. Is, oh is, no! Did the, is, did the recording save? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, no, it seems good. It's it's uploading. Oh, oh good, good. Uh, imagine. <laughs> what you just witnessed were the agonizing moments right after we've been suddenly cut off about 30 minutes into our conversation. My guest was recording from her apartment in beautiful New York City. And I was hosting from my quarantine workstation here at home in Zurich, Switzerland. For a short moment, I was not sure if you would ever have the chance to listen to this foundational episode about Ethereum. Thankfully, the entire conversation has been saved. So let's start the show. Hello and welcome to Unforkable, the podcast that brings you juicy stories from the world of crypto. My name is Jonas and today on the show, how a 19-year-old genius and a ragtag group of hackers invented the new internet of money, the genesis story of Ethereum. My guest and chief storyteller today is none other than Camilla Rousseau. Camilla is probably the most qualified person to tell this story on the planet right now. Because Camilla is not only a journalist and entrepreneur, but recently also became an author. The Infinite Machine, that's the title of her first book. It chronicles in detail the birth and rise of the Ethereum blockchain. For the book, Camilla has recorded over 100 interviews with all of the original founders, countless community members, lawyers and other key players that have shaped in some form the history of Ethereum. She has looked at the story from all angles and fact-checked everything with the journalistic rigor of the Bloomberg-trained financial journalist she is. The outcome is a detailed account of Ethereum's past, present and likely future that reads like a novel. I can really recommend it to anyone who is interested in crypto. In our conversation we also tap into the fascinating background of Camilla, a story that spans from Chile to the US, Argentina, Spain and all the way back to New York. So you, um, you dedicated this book, which is called The Infinite Machine, How an Army of Crypto Hackers is Building the Next Internet of Ethereum, to your mom. Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, how, how did you explain to your mom what, what Ethereum <laughs> is? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so the way that I explain Ethereum to my mom and family, friends, who, you know, most of them don't have anything to do with crypto, is that Ethereum is the infrastructure for new type of applications and a new financial system. The infrastructure that Ethereum provides allows this uh, system to be completely open and accessible to anyone anywhere in the world. And, you know, finance is, is one great use case for this, but the idea is that um, any sort of application on the internet will also be able to use these rails and have kind of value ingrained at the core. We are going to dive deep into the history of Ethereum a bit later in the episode. But first I wanted to get to know more about Camilla's own background and history. What were your first memories of writing because it seems that you that it's it was a passion for a long time yeah i've been writing for as long as i i i, I know how when i was a, a small kid like nine years old i moved from chile my home country to the united states to miami 
And my grandmother uh, gave me a diary because she knew it was going to be like a big change. At, at first, the, the move was kind of tough. I didn't know the language. I didn't have friends. I missed my dad. So there was all these things happening. And I remember picking up this diary and I just, you know, tried it out. Like, dear diary, today, this is what happened in school. I just started doing that every single day almost. And it became this really great tool to express my feelings and just writing out what had happened th during the day evolved into telling stories, writing poetry, and then writing is the reason why I got into journalism as well. That's so cool that you found your passion or your talent so early on. That's mm -hmm. very rare. Um, I've seen that you studied also journalism at Northwestern in Chicago and then later started as a journalist at Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what Bloomberg is and what kind of stories are interesting for Bloomberg? Sure. Okay, so Bloomberg News is one of the biggest financial information companies. It provides really a specific information on markets and, and the economy. You know, like all, all, all of like big Wall Street firms use Bloomberg. So at, at Northwestern, I took a business journalism class and through this business journalism class, they took us to the Bloomberg office in Chicago. I was so impressed, you know, sitting in front of a Bloomberg terminal. If you've seen kind of images of a trading floor and, and you notice like those like big black screens with the colorful numbers and charts inside and the, the keyboard with the colorful uh, keys, um, that's a Bloomberg terminal. All of the information, it seemed, was at your fingertips. It was like, uh, I don't know, like the G GDP for Singapore for the past 20 years, and you could pull that up. Or like, what are the latest news of what's happening for the oil market? And you could pull that up. And it's just like a wealth of information right there. Camilla was hooked and she applied for the Bloomberg internship. She got accepted and later hired as a journalist, her first job right out of college. So it was a, an incredible place to, to start my career because, I mean, the standards are super, super high at, at Bloomberg. Like you need to be super accurate. If you make a mistake, you need to correct it right away. And it's all documented in your metrics. So it's super scary to make a mistake and you have to have impeccable sources. So yeah, it, it really kind of helped um, form me as, as a journalist. And the journalistic rigor, she would later also apply to the book and her reporting on crypto. But I'm jumping ahead. Because first, Bloomberg sent Camilla to Argentina to cover the markets there. That was around the time when Bitcoin made its first appearance in the mainstream media. The first time I heard about Bitcoin was in Argentina in 2013. Um, I, I was there with Bloomberg and I was covering the Argentine markets. And the, the big thing then and now is the super high inflation and uh, currency controls that Argentines had to deal with and find ways to protect their savings from their devaluing currency. Yeah. Can you like explain that to, to the listeners, sure. how, what currency control is? Because... Um, I'm coming from Switzerland and our problem is sometimes that the, the currency is too strong. So I think this is a very hard concept to, to grasp for people who haven't lived it before. So what happens in a country like Argentina is that 
Um, the, the local currency is continuously devaluing because the, the government finances its spending by printing more of the local currency. And because it's a populist government, they were spending a lot on subsidies and other stuff and like building infrastructure and stuff they couldn't pay for because, you know, they want to keep people happy. And like um, an interesting thing that, that, that was happening was that I was living in like a super good neighborhood, like the Bloomberg salaries in, in Argentina allowed me to live, you know, really well. and. I got, you know, my electricity bill, which came like every three months. And in the electricity bill, it said you would usually have to pay this much. But thanks to the government subsidy, you now have to pay like cents. It was like a, a, like a laughable amount, like it didn't make any sense. I was earning super well, you know, I had a Bloomberg salary and I was still getting subsidied. And so that was kind of the level of, of like crazy spending. Um, and that was causing super a high inflation, a inflation of 25% um, a year. Your purchasing power um, declined th throughout the year. So with, with the same amount of money that you could buy, um, some amount of stuff at the start of the year could get you a lot less by, by the end of the year. So of course people, what they did was as soon as they got their, their pesos, uh, they bought dollars to have um, a, a stable currency to put their savings in. And those who could even took those dollars outside of the country and put them in international accounts because people in Argentina don't trust the, the banking system um, because it's happened before that banks have shut down withdrawals and have kept uh, savings locked up. So there's deep mistrust in the banking system. So what happens then is that people buy dollars that makes the, the local currency depreciate even further and they take the dollars out of the country. And, and that means that the, the, the country's dollar reserves are going down. That means that the country has less money to buy um, exports and, and pay for debt. And it's just like this like really bad spiral. A really bad spiral indeed. One that only can be broken if the Argentinian government could reestablish trust in the local currency. Cristina Fernández de Kirchner was the president of Argentina at that time and she proposed a very simple solution on how the crumbling Argentine peso could be saved. One day Cristina said people can't buy dollars anymore um, to kind of stop this from happening. And what was very crazy to me is that I was at the Bloomberg office reporting when, when this happened. Um, Christina made this announcement, uh, you can't buy dollars anymore. And, you know, I had been doing this myself. Like, I, as soon as I got to the Buenos Aires office, my colleagues told me, when you get your salary in pesos, you need to convert it to dollars right away. And that's what I had been doing. Um, and it was really simple. I had my, my dollar account in the bank and my peso account, and it was like an online thing that I just like traded um, from my peso to my dollar account. So after reporting on the news, I went to my uh, you know online banking site, and sure enough, the option to do that just wasn't there anymore. Um, and it was instant. I had just finished reporting on the news, and then I, I went to my bank, and the option wasn't there anymore. So it really hit me, like, you're not 
really in control of, of your money. Like one day you get a crazy president and they can just do whatever. You can't buy dollars anymore. You can't take your money out of the country uh, or, or they can tell banks to limit withdrawals and you're stuck. You have nothing to do. So um, when later on I, I, I read about Bitcoin, it really struck me. Wow, like there's this system where nobody can tell you what to do with your money. Like you're, you are really in control. And did you then, when this happened, did you then start to use Bitcoin or crypto right away? Or did you use another system to, to hedge against the, so to speak, against the Argentine peso? So I'm pretty much um, risk averse, but I, I did buy some Bitcoin. Um, but you know, in, in general, I just kept buying dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. But how did you buy the dollars? Can you, can you explain how oh, that worked? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, it's really interesting. The black market for dollars in Argentina is super well-developed because it's been there forever. They call it the blue market, not the black market. So they say the dollar blue is the exchange rate in the black market. When you walk down uh, like the main avenues, you have people standing at the corners of, of the sidewalk and, and they'll just be there and, and being like, dollar, 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 <laughs> almost like a street vendor. It's like right out in the open. And, and because they're standing on, on the sidewalk, they call them arbolitos, which means little trees, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because they're like yeah. lining the street. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're walking down the sidewalk and then you'll go up to one of the arbolitos and, and be like, Hey, what's your exchange rate? They'll tell you, you go, okay, I, I want to buy a hundred dollars. And then they'll take you to like a back, like, I, I don't know, like they'll have like a front, uh, store, like say, um, selling cell phones or whatever. And then at the back, they'll have like their dollar <laughs> exchange <laughs> operation. Um, and you'll just like ex exchange your pesos for, for, for the dollars at the black market rate. Um, and, and that's it. And then, I mean, you can like go shopping around the street for like the best rate. They even had like dollar mm -hmm. delivery systems, um, wow. <laughs> where you could call like a, like a, like a guy who came in a motorcycle delivering dollars. So yeah, you had, um, a lot of crazy stuff. Um, another thing is that. For example, most apartments, the rent is paid in dollars. So you had to do like crazy stuff. I had to exchange pesos for dollars in the black market to be able to pay rent. So I was like walking around downtown Buenos Aires with like a thousand dollars in my purse, um, wow. <laughs> which was a, a lot um, to be carrying around. I mean, even worse was people we're actually buying full properties uh, in in cash in dollars like a, a lot of the property market moves like that with, with there's hardly any mortgages because of inflation so people who buy properties they need to have the amount of of dollars up front um so yeah it's it's a crazy distorted market this is the reason why there are so many argentines involved in in crypto because the use case is, is very clear for them. This background will give you the perfect reason to be um, a Bitcoin maximalist or a, <laughs> or a gold bug or, or something yeah. like that. But what, when, when do you remember the first time you heard the word Ethereum and it made click and you were like, 
ah, that's that's interesting. Or yeah, I think I don't think there was a moment where I was like, wow, like Ethereum is the answer. Um, and I, I don't really think that either. So you know, I always wanted to to write a book, and I knew that I wanted it to be a nonfiction book that read like a novel. And nobody had really told the story of Ethereum, you know, the second biggest cryptocurrency that had helped fuel all the craziness of 2017 with ICOs and uh, with this very charismatic leader behind it and this ragtag group of developers. And, you know, it was like a, a really exciting story to tell. That's what initially drove me to Ethereum. Um, and then, you know, once researching it, I kind of started to understand um, the real value behind it, kind of beyond what Bitcoin can offer. So what is it that Ethereum can offer that Bitcoin cannot? Let's hear it directly from someone who must know. Bitcoin is very good, is very good for transferring money, but it was not des designed as a foundational layer for any kind of protocols to be built on top. So Ethereum is therefore its own blockchain. And here's the fundamental part. It has its own built-in programming language. You know, back in the 1930s, uh, Alan, Alan Turing came up with uh, this, this concept of, of Turing complete programming languages, where instead of specializing for each individual application, you come up with a programming language. And then that programming language is so powerful that you can build any application on top that can conceivably be built. This is the reason why computers are so powerful today. This is the reason why web browsers are so powerful today. After we came out with JavaScript around 2000, the internet just blew up. The inventors of JavaScript never intended for somebody to write Gmail on top of JavaScript, or for somebody to write Facebook on top of JavaScript, or for somebody to write Bitcoin wallets on top of JavaScript. But JavaScript, this programming language of the internet browser, was a foundation for innovation. And that's why 13 years later, we are still innovating today. And that's what I hope to bring to the world of cryptocurrency. The voice you just heard, of course, belongs to Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum himself. This recording stems from the Bitcoin conference 2014 in Miami, where Vitalik presented Ethereum for the first time to the public. Vitalik envisioned that Ethereum one day would be this global open source platform for decentralized applications. Sending money back and forth would be just one of the many use cases. Camilla has interviewed Vitalik many times, so naturally I was wondering how he was like. He's a very special character. I mean, physically, he's super tall, super thin. He has these like very clear blue eyes and you look at him and he's always like far away. It's, it's easy for him to just like go far away and look to the distance and you can see him like, what is he thinking about, you know, <laughs> just like go off and... and um, he, he'll even start kind of muttering to himself because he's like deep in thought. Uh, so he's, yeah, it's like a very particular uh, character. He thought of this project when he was only 19 years old. His family is from Russia and he was born in, in Russia in a city near Moscow. But he moved with his family to Toronto at a very early age. And he studied computer science, but then dropped out to to work on Ethereum. But before Ethereum, there was Bitcoin. Vitalik fell in love with Bitcoin, but it was not exactly a love at first sight. Just like so many of us, Vitalik first struggled to understand the concept of Bitcoin. One, one thing that, that stood out to me 
when when I read the book um, is that when he learned about Bitcoin, his first thing was, but this doesn't have any real world backing. How can it have any value? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting because that's literally what everybody says if you tell them about yeah. cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, how did you think about this in the beginning and how did it evolve? Yeah, I think it's... <laughs> I think it's in the beginning, it's hard to kind of get this concept of money being issued by um, a network that's not controlled by, by anyone. But I think like once you realize, okay, there's real energy being spent to participate in this network and confirm transactions and, you know, solve this like weird puzzle, which, you know, if you're the first to solve, then Bitcoin gets created and you need to spend an, a, a crazy amount of energy to solve this puzzle, then you realize it's not like anyone can just mint Bitcoin out of thin air. Um, and it is a lot like, like gold mining or like mining a commodity from the ground. Like it takes work to do. Vitalik must have come to a similar conclusion because his skepticism towards the cryptocurrency quickly turned into a fascination and he invested more and more of his time researching and writing about Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, he went from, from being a Bitcoin skeptic to, to being a full-on Bitcoiner. Um, like he, he understood the, the value and then he wanted to participate in the Bitcoin economy, but he didn't want to just buy Bitcoin, he wanted to earn it. So he started writing for different um, Bitcoin blogs online in exchange for Bitcoin. So that was his way of participating in, in the Bitcoin economy and earning Bitcoin. Um, and, and that's right, he started this, this system of writing, just releasing the like first uh, few lines of an article, and then he would release a full article if uh, people sent enough Bitcoin. So, yeah. <laughs> Once Vitalik immersed himself fully in the world of Bitcoin, he started to dream up all kinds of other applications that could be built on a blockchain. Initially, he wanted to build them on top of Bitcoin, but it quickly became clear that 1. the Bitcoin community was not very open to Vitalik's experimentation and 2. that Bitcoin was not designed to be built on. Vitalik became convinced that he needed to start a new blockchain one that was designed with programmability at its core. The idea for Ethereum was born. Vitalik wrote down his idea in an official white paper, which he released online. To his surprise, his idea received a lot of positive feedback from other crypto enthusiasts around the globe and a small community of believers who shared Vitalik's vision of the world computer started to form around him. Uh, imagine one day maybe your book will be a movie, right? I hope so. <laughs> So which characters would show up and how would they get introduced into the movie? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, oh, that's a tough one. Well, I guess like first thing is, is there were eight initial uh, co-founders, but in reality, there were so many more uh, people involved. And um, Vitalik was very much of the idea of just including anyone who wanted to participate in the project. And there was a hub in Berlin, there was a hub in Amsterdam, one in Toronto. So it was like uh, this like growing community of Ethereans contributing to the project. Um, 
in the beginning really for free so in 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 my book i start introducing characters in a chronological order so uh I don't know if that, that's the right way to, to make the movie. <laughs> I started with Vitalik and then how he met Mihai Alisi, who um, was a, a poker player in, in Romania. And they founded Bitcoin Magazine together. So that was the very start of the story. And then next were Anthony Diorio, who he met at a Bitcoin meetup in, in Toronto. Um, then, you know, he met Amir Chetrit at a con conference in Am Amsterdam. Um, then Anthony Diorio uh, brought Charles Hoskinson in. Um, and then at the Miami house is when kind of they all met, uh, or almost all of them, except for um, Mihai, who, who couldn't get a visa for the U.S., so he couldn't travel and he was in Romania. And Jeff Wilkie, who was an important developer in Ethereum in the early days, and he was um, in Amsterdam because he was kind of working undercover for Ethereum because he was working at like this other blockchain project at the time. Um, but anyways, I think Miami is like a key moment because all of the founders were, or most of the founders were there, plus other people in the community. And so what happened in, in Miami is that Anthony DiHario organized for everyone to come stay at this mansion by the water um, where they they would prepare to announce Ethereum to the world for the first time at this conference, the North America Bitcoin conference. So they spent the whole week there and everyone remembers this very fondly as like a time where, you know, everyone was like sleeping on the couch and on the floor and like writing on like a whiteboard in the house, like designing what Ethereum would look like and also how the funds that they raised would be distributed. Um, and everyone had this like big dreams for, for the project and how they were creating the next Bitcoin. And, you know, this was 2013. Uh, Bitcoin had just gone through like a big bull run. So everyone was like super excited. So I think this would be kind of the initial scene in the movie, which would set the tone for, for the rest of it. And Joseph Lubin uh, would be there too, right? And right, yeah, yeah. That's that's when Joe came in. And, and he and Anthony would is is that right? They were a little bit the adults uh, in the team, and they would also mm -hmm. fund the whole thing. They had they had money from their background somehow. Yeah, yeah. Anthony. Mm -hmm. So Anthony Diorio, um, he was the founder of uh, Bitcoin Decentral in in Toronto, and his his family was somewhat uh, wealthy. Um, and Joe Lubin uh, had this background as a former hedge fund manager who had, uh, you know, dropped that and, and gone to manage his friend's uh, musical career in Jamaica. Um, so, <laughs> and, but before that, he was like at Goldman Sachs. So he was uh -huh. definitely kind of the adult in the room as well. And, and, and Joe and Anthony were the ones who helped finance Ethereum in the early days. They, They, they lend money to, to the team. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's crazy because you have this like very strange mix of people, right? You have this like Goldman Sachs hedge fund manager with this, you know, kind of entrepreneur, uh, like wealthy entrepreneur from Toronto mixed with this like 19 year old kid, uh, like, like Russian Canadian hacker um, and, and like this like 
poker player from Romania, <laughs> like a bunch of other mm -hmm. interesting characters. After the successful announcement of Ethereum in Miami, Vitalik and his team are looking for a more permanent base, where they could prepare for the Ether crowd sale. A massive kind of crowdfunding that would fund the development of the new blockchain. At that time, it was still unclear if Ethereum would become a company or some sort of non-profit organization. But either way, the town of Souk in Switzerland seemed to be a good choice due to welcoming regulations. And this was crucial, because the Ethereum ICO would bring up all kinds of legal questions. The most important one, if the Ether crowd sale would fall under the securities law or not. Um, so I... I spoke with uh, Steven Nereyev, who was very much involved in, in, the, in the conversations with the lawyers leading up to the ICO in the US. And, um, you know, he, he remembers having this like light bulb moment of, oh, wow, like Ethereum isn't a security because you, you actually use it as gas, as like actual like gasoline or like a stamp on on a letter like just something that you need um to for the network to work and so since since it has this utility it's it's not a speculative security um and so that's the case he made and actually you know convinced uh the lawyers to agree with them this was kind of how this term of utility token started gaining steam mm -hmm. That narrative of ether as gas, as something you use to use a network as a utility, this has really, um, yeah, been the narrative for a while. And now yeah. uh, it seems they want to switch it back to ETH is money, mm -hmm. as some people, at least in, in the community, yeah. want to do this. So ETH as uh, gas to pay for, for transactions on Ethereum was always there. And I think... You know, that was kind of one of the like really clever designs of the project, um, because the thing with Ethereum is that it's a Turing complete platform. And this means that the platform can process any computation that you throw at it. And so that makes it really complex and it makes it open to attacks, um, which, you know, an attacker could write up a computation that goes into an infinite loop that, you know, never ends um, and break the network and, you know, make it unusable because it, it will never finish kind of computing that um, transaction. So the way that Vitalik fixed this is by saying, whenever you transact on Ethereum, you need to pay gas. And gas is paid with Ethereum's native cryptocurrency, Ether. So that was like always a very key part of why Ethereum can work, um, why it's feasible for it to be this like world computer, right? Um, so it was definitely there, but the the team working with the, the lawyers in the US definitely, you know, took this, this um, feature of the platform to make it more, suitable you know for for a sale and to prepare for the big ethereum sale vitalik and his team of co-founders hunkered down in a small house in souk they called this house the spaceship and just like astronauts on a mission the core team was working living and sleeping in the spaceship for months 
Unsurprisingly, the harmony could not last, and especially the unresolved question of whether Ethereum should become a non-profit or a company started to tear the group apart. Um, again, a little bit thinking from the movie, how would that be portrayed? Would you say in the Ethereum story, who would be the villain in the story and why? <laughs> Um, oh no, I don't want to. I don't want to pick a villain, but <laughs> I, I think there's there was definitely kind of like two sides uh, to to this. So there was like the nonprofit foundation side, which was led mostly by by Vitalik and Mihai, who were kind of the more like idealistic, um, you know, part of the group. And and then there was kind of the more business side who wanted to build a for-profit company, which would build applications on on top of this open protocol. And um, the people leading that side were Charles Hoskinson and Anthony Diorio. Um, Amir Chitrit as well was also for for the for-profit uh, company. Lubin, where did he stand? It. You know, from my interviews, it, it was never quite clear that he was very strongly for one side or, or the other. Um, so both him and Gavin Wood were ambiguous on their, their position. Yeah. Uh, and Charles Hoskin, I also wanted to ask you this. How, how did he end up as a CEO of Ethereum in the first place? Charles always wanted to be the, the CEO. In, in his previous company, he wanted to be the CEO um, with Ethereum when he came on. They had this early Skype conversations uh, when the project was forming and um, it was agreed that he would become CEO of the project. And this was before they were clear on whether they would be a foundation or a company. So um, that's how kind of this role of CEO came about in, in the early days. Um, so. Charles was there in Switzerland in the house with like the the developers and designers, um, and people started losing trust in him because you know Charles was very much of the idea of making a for-profit company. Um, he was you know talking to VCs and uh, uh, different big cor corporations to make partnerships with Ethereum, and people were very skeptical of this and. Um, they also kind of saw him, you know, going off on like meetings with lawyers and just like working by himself on the basement of the house. And I don't know, just like this distrust with Charles kept growing. Uh, people also mentioned these very long uh, sessions where he'd stand in front of a whiteboard and just draw out really complicated math formulas just for what it seemed showing off. So it's just little things that kept building and building in the house. And, you know, imagine that there were a bunch of guys living, working, sleeping in the same rooms, um, eating together. They had not much social life. Uh, so I think all these things with Charles really started to blow up. And so that, you know, by the end, nobody could stand him and they didn't want to work with them anymore. They were complaining to, to Vitalik. And, and Gavin and, and everyone was just like tired of, of this tension. So um, when this time came in Sug, uh, where all the founders were, were called to, to come, this moment that you know people uh, have called the, the red wedding. Um, <laughs> and that's where like all of these tensions exploded. 
Okay, and then Vitalik was uh, had to make a tough decision. And... Yeah, I, I can only imagine how, how hard it was for him to, to make that decision. So after all of the guys in the house started criticizing Charles, the founders went off to meet on their own and they told Vitalik, it's your project, you decide what to do right now. And so um, Vitalik made the decision that Charles and Amir wouldn't be part of the management group for Ethereum, even though they they keep their titles as co-founders. Um, and yeah, instead promoted two others, uh, team members, to be part of the management group. Mm -hmm. The Ether crowd sale took place in 2014 from July to August, and it was a huge success. Over 18 million US dollars were raised in Bitcoin from thousands of speculators and crypto enthusiasts. At the time, the Bitcoin price was about $500 and early investors would receive up to 2000 ETH per Bitcoin. Needless to say that the ones lucky enough to scoop up Ether for 25 cents a piece would become insanely rich in the coming years. If they had the stamina to hold on to the Ether, that is because it was definitely not smooth sailing going forward. Actually, there were many times in the short history of Ethereum when the project almost died. First up was what we talked about, kind of uh, this debate between the founders of what it should become. Many startups don't survive uh, a huge kind of conflict within the founders. Then came this really bad uh, bear market. Um, in between 2014, 2015, and Ethereum was really struggling. It was almost running out of money because they had raised uh, money in Bitcoin and they had their Ether and like prices had crashed. Um, so they, they lost like half of what they had raised because of how Bitcoin had declined. It was a really tough moment for Ethereum in, in 2015. Like people who were around back then had serious doubts about whether their project would be able to survive. Like it was in really bad financial um, health. And then 2016 um, came and they had recovered their, their finances. They were on much better footing, but then the DAO hack came. <laughs> so um, that was a huge deal. DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And the idea was that the DAO would be this kind of investor-owned venture fund. It was one of the first and certainly the biggest smart contracts on Ethereum at the time. About 14% of all Ether at the time was locked in the DAO smart contract. There was a huge honeypot waiting to be exploited. Oh, like $150 million, which was by far the, the biggest crowd sale on Ethereum at the time, they raised even more than what Ethereum had raised itself. So they had this huge stash of money locked in a smart contract and it was hacked. And, you know, this led to the decision to fork the, the network. So that means there was a, a new software created, which excluded the DAO hack. And this was like really, really tough for, for the blockchain and Ethereum community because one of the big values of a blockchain is immutability. You know, this idea that you have this network that just runs forever without human intervention. But here were Ethereum developers and team members deciding to create a different version of Ethereum because of this one project. 
So it was very controversial. Uh, many people thought Ethereum wouldn't survive this. Um, even more so when after the fork, the old Ethereum chain started running again and became Ethereum Classic. Disgruntled Ethereans, like people who didn't believe in the fork, and also some Bitcoiners started supporting the old Ethereum chain. So it was a really like tough, tough moment. So I think those were kind of the the biggest hurdles Ethereum had to overcome. Then like the ICO boom and bust, like the, the price crash, all of that. So it's it's been through a lot. How did you feel in 2018 when everything was crashing and you were involved in this project? And mm -hmm. did you have sometimes doubts that maybe, hey, now everything is crashing and Ethereum hmm. will not survive? Or how did that feel? Because there was a brutal year, yeah. 2018, 2019, until yeah. just recently, actually. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think I, I didn't feel doubts about Ethereum. And I think the, um, the reason was that while the price was crashing, I was focused on following the Ethereum community around. And so I was going to the hackathons. I was going to the conferences and I was seeing the number of developers working on Ethereum just kept growing. And I saw that they just kept building more and more interesting stuff and just like delivering actual working products. And I just saw like just growing excitement. Um, and it just was in very stark contrast to the price. And when you went to these hackathons, like nobody was talking about um, about the price or like ICOs or like shilling tokens. They were like talking about hacking and building and like creating stuff. So that was like really, really exciting, um, like being a part of, of this community for the research of my book. And so there's this, this anecdote um, in early 2019, I went to Bloomberg to quit my job there and so i went to say hi to to my team and they were all like very crypto skeptic um and and so one of them was like hey like how's the book writing going good it's going great and then he pulls up the ethereum chart on the bloomberg terminal and goes like oh my god don't you ever write about me because like, <laughs> you're writing about eve and look what what's happening to the price um <laughs> so, so uh, but it was like, I knew that the price wasn't reflecting what was actually going on in Ethereum. So I think watching these developers building is what uh, made me kind of not doubt the, the project. And, and also that he had actually on the Bloomberg terminal, the Ether price. I mean, that <laughs> also says something, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was during the 2017 boom, uh, all the terminal users were just begging for more crypto prices. So that was like what was left from, from those days. <laughs> <laughs> so now we just um, crossed five years mark of e Ethereum. <laughs> what, what are your hopes for the future? What, what, where do you see it go? Yeah, what's been the most exciting um, in, in the past year has been seeing this whole ecosystem of financial applications being born on Ethereum. It's like watching a completely new financial system being created from scratch. I cover it on the Defiant, uh, the, the content platform that I, that I created last year. Um, 
So I believe that DeFi, you know, how this ecosystem of financial applications are called, DeFi will, will continue dominating um, the Ethereum landscape and it'll continue growing and providing more value, attracting more people to it. Okay, so th that sounds amazing and very exciting. And you are, as you mentioned before, Defiant um, is your, your content platform. I think, is, mm -hmm. is it a, a newsletter you can sign up? For yeah, it's a newsletter, a podcast, and now a YouTube channel. Um, wow. but you can, yeah, you can sign up at uh, thedefiant.substack.com, and it's an almost daily uh, newsletter where, where I cover everything that's going on in DeFi. Thank you so much, Camilla, to, to come on and uh, go through yeah, there, of course, through the story with me. It's, it was very amazing. I love the book, I, re I think you really accomplished what you went out to do. and Uh, tell a uh, enticing story for everybody to read. I, I can only recommend it. It was my I, pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Even though I'm a crypto rookie, this podcast is very entertaining and it gives me nerdy insights and really funny stories. Looking forward to the next episode. That was my last review. Thank you very much, kind stranger. If you have listened until now, until the end of the episode, maybe you find a couple of seconds to also write a review. I love to read them. Um, it helps that other people will find this show. And it's a sign of support. Also, um, you can go on unforkable.cc and sign up in the mailing list. Currently, I'm not sending out any emails yet. It's for me just a signal that, hey, somebody has listened to this episode. I'm always happy to hear that. It's always nice to get a feedback and hopefully hear from you soon. Bye-bye.